This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So a true crime news, and I don't, I don't actually know if this is a good source. Uh, this comes from Xander Sherman and John Miller, and they're writing for something, something called CapitalDaily.ca. It's a Canadian website. I, I've never seen anything from there before. Have you? I have not. Okay. Um, this actually, my kids sent me this. I don't know where they got it, but it's interesting. It's got like this disclaimer at the top of the page it says in 2019 capital daily embarked on a long-term investigation to uncover new information about one of true crimes more frequently cited unsolved murders after three years 200 interviews and gaining access to more than 1500 pages of court documents filed by police to support the request for orders and warrants for the investigation it is finally ready to reveal its reporting. The result answers questions that have eluded 15 years of heavy media coverage and dispels misinformation that police say could be damaging their case. And then there's a warning that this story contains graphic language and descriptions of violence. It's it's funny because we started this doing this several years ago. You and I started down this path where we really wanted to see what was missed and like that was even that's been my catchphrase like even in season one of this show they just missed it because the mainstream media and sometimes investigators and family members like something will happen in a case and they just like for some reason they don't understand what's being said and that's like the best case scenario and the worst case scenario is they just made up what they wanted to say right don't think the two things are mutually exclusive. That's very true. I would agree with that. This is a case that you and I have had a lot of arguments over for a variety of reasons. But the, the biggest one is I would say I would call this case a true who done it. What do you do you think it's a true who done it or do you think somebody knows in law enforcement and they just can't put all the pieces together? Well, I was sort of under the impression that at this point it is all coming together. That could be the case. Okay. And so I've gone, this case makes me cringe. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I feel like I probably know who did it. Okay. So the, t- the title of this article, which I left out at first is the case, the internet got wrong. And there is a subtitle to this. That says a new investigation said sheds light on Lindsay Buziak's unsolved murder, revealing a vast web of misinformation. This case is baffling to me personally, but that's not even what the article's really about. They do address the case itself. We've talked a little bit about Lindsay on the show before. 
she came up in season one as just one of the the things that happened in time. Uh, her death took place on February second, two thousand eight, and when we were sort of looking at everything we could possibly look at uh, related to Israel Keys, etc., um, we also talked about a, a case of a guy from two thousand four named Al Kite, and we mentioned Lindsay in the course of that. But here's the tone of this article. Uh, Here's how it starts out. All true crime fanatics have that one case that keeps them up at night. And this is a TikTok influencer that they don't credit here um, who told her audience of more than 400,000 followers that her case that keeps her up at night is the murder of Lindsay Buziak. The nutshell version of that is Lindsay, a 24-year-old real estate agent, was stabbed to death on February 2nd, 2008, while she was showing a vacant house to an unidentified man and woman. Jason, her 27-year-old boyfriend at the time, discovered her body. And 15 years later, her murder remains one of Vancouver Island's most infamous events, which is how Vancouver Island and its location and its proximity to the, some of the other stories we told is how we end up like looking at her at all. Um, but the article goes on to say with no arrests and few answers from police, conspiracy theories and speculation have spread like Pacific wildfire. In her next sentence, this TikTok creator mistakes Lindsay's hometown, Victoria for Vancouver. It's the first of so many errors and among the least troubling part of her account uh, throughout the rest of the three minute video. And in the comments section, she gets fact after fact wrong from purported details about Lindsay's relationship to what she describes as a lack of footprints in the home, leading to the proliferation of more misinformation and unfounded conclusions. The article goes on to break down sort of how many people have liked this and commented on this video and how some of the people point at Lindsay's boyfriend, Jason, and some of them point at Jason's mother. Uh, But the, the idea is that there are Dozens and dozens of TikTok videos about this story. There are hundreds of YouTube videos with millions and millions of views. There are uh, between 2019 and 2022, according to the authors at Capital Daily, uh, there was an average of one video or podcast episode about this murder made every single week. Her case was covered uh, by Dateline NBC, Crime Watch Daily, Investigation Discovery, Dr. Phil, and much of that coverage contains inaccuracies and further propagates misinformation. I don't know which direction you want to take this. So let me... Was that shocking to you? Is this a shocking proclamation to you? It uh, it is interesting to see someone seizing on the idea of pop crime at this point. Pop crime being popular crime, stuff that stays in the news and doesn't go away. Natalie Holloway is an example. Gabby Petito is an example. Lindsay Buziak's story is also an example. Mara Murray is an example. I mean more from the perspective of like somebody has taken the time, which we do it on the show all the time, but somebody has taken the time to write this article to say like this influencer, the case that keeps her up at night. So this would be like top of the mind case for this person, right? She virtually has no understanding of what actually happened. No, no, that doesn't shock me at all. In fact, that is something that you preach day in, day out when we're looking at stuff. I, I feel like it's so important because narratives are always wrong. 
<laughs> it and the reason that they're always wrong is because the narrative is what has been pieced together, you know, back in the, you know, olden days, <laughs> back in the 80s and 90s, it was, you know, <laughs> it was what, you know, journalists were able to piece together to condense, you know, well, it's actually really simple, but it's so simple, it's complicated. And they have to take the simple that's complicated and then simplify it into a storyline, right? Because that's the only way that right. people in general can grasp cases, right? We yeah, I call it spoon feeding, but yeah. We, we can't, you know, we can't digest. We're not the investigators on the scene. You know, we don't experience it personally. It all starts with... The, you know, whoever the first person is that gets the first fact wrong, right, that has an influence on the narrative, right? Because it just, it spreads from there, just like the article said, like wildfire. Correct. But it doesn't shock me. I, what shocks me more so than anything, which I guess it could be hypocritical, but like it shocks me that they wrote an article about it because this is just a given to me. Okay. Okay. But so, all right. I, and I'm just going to, I'm not going to read this article verbatim. If you don't know Lindsay Buziak's story, this is uh, worth looking up. It's capitaldaily.ca. It's, this is a Jan, like the end of January, 2023, this article is coming out. So the article goes on to sort of talk about the case, but more about the coverage of the case. And specifically, they talk about Lindsay's dad in some interesting ways. And they talk about the coverage of this case uh, through another popular true crime podcast called case file and there's some back and forth in there about what's going on with uh case files presentation of the lindsey buziak case and how uh, uh jeff his last name is just buziak right jeff buziak yeah okay i i thought it was so jeff buziak is running a blog and he's done some weird shit he's been interviewed on like all the big shows datelines had him on but apparently He's claimed to have a letter that Lindsay left him. Um, he's had some interactions with Capital Daily and the researchers and the authors of this article through this and, and through and about this website, uh, lindsaybuziakmurder.com. There are multiple blogs that come up in here, but here's what's crazy. So they're bashing this whole thing. They're like sort of tearing apart how true crime coverage works, which is awesome. But it's not really an article and it's not really about the coverage being a problem. It's really to advertise Murder on the Island, the Lindsay Buziak story, a podcast by Capital Daily. Right. I felt so weird when I realized that this whole thing I had just read that I thought might be about new information related to Lindsay Buziak's story, which in some ways, some of this is, it's not necessarily new, but there's a lot of clarification. And they do some good work here, but they're really advertising their own take on it all. What do you think about covering the, and, and like we do it too. So like, I don't want to seem like a hypocrite when I say this, but like they're covering a case from a highly sensational perspective to advertise their coverage of a case. 
Well, I hope that they do it effectively because if it's not done effectively, it it won't help. What right. I mean by that is there's still the false information, like if nobody reads the whole thing and realizes that they're highlighting false information or misunderstood information, they're just spreading it even more. <laughs> That's what I thought about. And they do point out a very important factor here. And this, this comes up with us. It comes up like in the background of like other things I'm doing when I'm writing or when I'm prepping something that, and this is the quote from the article. There's an encounter between Jeff Buziak and the police. There's actually multiple encounters where Jeff seemingly in 2017 sort of confesses or seems to have confessed or seems to be alleging someone else confessed to what happened to Lindsay. But the quote that I thought was important was after Jeff is confronted by the police is the police point out and they told um, CHEK news that people posting false confessions, misinformation, and really a bunch of nonsense on the internet was draining police resources and could impact a potential prosecution. And I think that's the most important thing to take away from what's being said here is the draining of police resources and the impacting prosecutions. That's not good. Well, and I don't know. I mean, I understand why that would be said because basically they're saying like, you know, chill out. Even that is sort of misinformation though, because I mean, is it really going to affect prosecution? I mean, they don't even have a suspect. Uh, that's a good point. I mean, I, I think, okay, so if we... So how do you get people to stop without telling them to stop? Well, you tell them something like that, right? Yeah, basically. I mean, because I see it all the time. People talking about how, like, some sort of social media outlet is going to affect our, you know, court system in a particular case or the adjudication of a particular case. And like, I, I, I get it. I get where social media goes crazy. I get where like everybody, you know, they're, everybody's talking about it, but at the same time, it has absolutely no effect on the case. It might, if the, if the case was going to be tried in the court of public opinion, that would be different. But as far as the judicial case goes, it, it, there are ways to completely avoid the stigma any social media would have put on something. Yeah, I don't. So I, I don't think it's going to affect the adjudication so much as drain the resources. Well, I, and that's don't you kind of well, okay, and I get it, but like you know, law enforcement doesn't have to address that. No, they really don't. I mean, it. Do you think there's a time when it gets too big? to ignore? Uh, not for law enforcement, no. I mean, I, I feel like, uh, and, you know, I try to put myself in everybody's position. Um, like, for example, the people who want to know and then, uh, you know, the investigators working on it, whoever's, you know, in charge. And, you know, to some extent, they may feel compelled to 
explain themselves like they have to, right? But ultimately, no. And if it is a drain on resources, and this is so terrible for me to say because I'm just sitting here in my office uh, do it, recording our podcast, but like if it's draining your resources, perhaps you're not the right person to manage this. Yeah, I. so I'm torn. On the one hand, I agree with you. On the other hand, like, you know, what do you follow up in one of these cases that becomes pop crime? And and I'm differentiating the, that from true crime because true crime is just when you're covering cases and you're reading news and you're checking out the mainstream media stuff. Pop crime is that handful of cases where when you say the key names involved in those cases, so many people who are podcasters or podcast audience members or armchair detectives or uh, people involved in Facebook groups, they know it like immediately and they have an opinion on them. Like there's, there's just the, that handful is growing larger over the years. There's more and more cases that are like that. And I've noticed that there are many newer cases like I'm thinking of the quadruple homicide that um, I've sort of avoided uh, bringing into this or Delphi like those newer cases new-ish cases they get out of hand pretty quickly I think those it would be more difficult to run down every rabbit hole and every lead right and they should ignore the things that are irrelevant you know and don't get me wrong, if somebody has information, right, they should provide it. But it's a pretty safe bet that most people that are talking about it on social media don't have actual information. They have speculation, they have fiction, they have, you know, whatever they want to put out there for everybody else to read or listen to, or watch, or whatever. But, like, they don't actually have information about the case. It's completely up to uh, law enforcement to not drain their resources on things that are coming in from social media. You know, how do you recognize that? Well, I feel like it should be kind of obvious what is a legitimate tip versus what's not. Yeah, you may, you know, you may feel the need to run everything down, but I mean, if that's honestly the case, uh, now, who were you quoting when you said that? Was it somebody specifically with this case or was it just in general? Like when I'm quoting the the resources and the... The uh, drain on, the, the drain social media is having on resources. Okay, so the person that I'm quoting here is, um, it's a staff sergeant named Chris Horsley. He has had interactions with the Buziak family and with Jason and his family. And his take on it was, he was, he was coming at that, that quote was coming from a place of like a public information officer's perspective. Right. And, you know, to that, I would just say uh, part of, you know, one's job is to not allow resources to be wastefully drained. Right. Um, And so, you know, you got to deal with it. Uh, I do get the mob mentality and how that could feel coming at you though. Yeah. And, um, I would have to say that, like, 
and and I'm guilty of like putting my opinion out there not even with the mob, just me saying like this, this is a terrible investigation. They've done a terrible job, right? I've said that about different situations. It doesn't come from nowhere, right? Um, I I would actually say it to their face though. I wouldn't just, you know, hide behind my computer, but I would also explain my point of view, which is what I usually do when I say something like that. But uh, you and I are really careful about reserving that for the cases where that's accurate. I mean, we try – I think you're giving an overview, but I've tried to spell out in a lot of different episodes about a lot of different mainstream cases that have issues, which I think you're mainly on board with. And sometimes I think you look at me like I'm crazy until you dig into it yourself. But generally speaking, I've tried to spell out what the real problem was or where the real – you know, should have taken, you know, a right turn versus a left turn was if I can find it. Sure. And what's interesting, because I I think this is important to say, particularly in the position of someone like Horsley, I'm not, I'm using his quote because of the resources comment, because it's something that's always in the back of my mind. I think it's important to know that there is an insider part of being an investigator in a case where you do develop your theories based on evidence that isn't made public. And while I rail against that in really old, cold cases, particularly like with Lindsay Buziak's case, the only thing I saw new here was I didn't know there was a, um, a pocket dial voicemail in the middle of the attack. Did you know that? Yeah, I knew that. You did uh, know that? I, I, it wasn't really, I mean, there was nothing gleaned from it except just the call itself, right? Right. That's the impression they left us with. But when you look at, okay, when you look at these type cases, and we're not, we're not covering Lindsay Buziak. We're actually covering the coverage of Lindsay Buziak here. And it is, it's a very sensational article overall. They talk to the Saanich police, which is where this happened. Um, They talk to the family and there, you know, there's a lot of back and forth in here that sort of shows you in some ways how over time these narratives develop. And I'm, you know, I'm, with cold cases, I'm an advocate for, and, and I've seen this in the news recently too, for there comes a point in time where you release most of the information to other investigators, whether they're private investigators, the family is hired or other agencies that have an interest or whatever. And I've, you know, I've gone through and I've talked to multiple different cold case investigators who, even after they're retired, are working in... Uh, some capacity on, you know, sort of either pet cases or by assignment on a rotation of cold cases in their area. And, you know, this article goes on to describe quite a few of the things that are wrong in the presentation of Lindsay Buziak's case, which I thought was interesting and kind of bold. Um, I will say it's a podcast. Like you guys can go and listen to that. All you have to do, if you look up Lindsay Buziak on any major podcast app, you can listen to what they're doing here. I don't know how relevant it's going to be to what's happening with Lindsay Buziak. Did you have something to say there? Cause I have a question for you, but go ahead. If you I was just going to say, I've not listened to it. I, so, I mean, we're just saying it's out there. That's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're not endorsing it. We're just saying it exists. If you're interested in that case particularly, I will say they have certainly fleshed out a story here. I don't know how accurate this is going to be. My question to you was going to be, do you think they're going to solve this? Is that what you don't think it's going to be solved by the cops? 
I feel like it's already solved. It's okay. just not adjudicated. I mean, do you, what do you think? Oh, I don't know. I don't. Okay, so if we were to dissect this, which I know we're not covering this case today, but I mean, if she's got to have been killed by someone that had a motivation, right? Unless Love it's money a serial or revenge, yeah. Unless it's a serial killer, which it's not. I mean, it's just not. Um, there's the way that the whole crime occurred. It that's just not how that would happen, right? And so, you know, who had motive here? Who, you know, would have killed her for love, money, or revenge? If you take a look at that case and you, you know, you see, because essentially she was showing a house. And while she was showing a house to someone who had, like, cold called her, I mean, kind of reverse cold called her and said, hey, I want, you know, I'm interested in buying this house. And they had a whole story or whatever. And she meets them to be their realtor to show them this house that was listed uh, by another, I don't know if it was by another agency or just another agent or whatever. But she shows up, meets with them, and she's showing the house, and she gets killed, right? Right. And that's, uh, so that's not a serial killer at work. And, And that's somebody that, you know, has enough information to make that happen, right? Yeah. The list is not long. No, it's not. Like and, and all of those people are talked about here. It's basically boyfriend, mom, competing realtor, dad, and you know, they talk a little bit about the fact that like there seems to be a woman and a man involved in terms of the ruse. Um and you know, I don't know I don't have a particular opinion on this. Do you have like a specific opinion as to who did it? Well, I do, but I don't know that I, I, without going into the case, I really don't think I should like put it out there. Oh, that's fine. (laughs) Then we, then we won't do that. I'll say this. Um, I did notice that this comes on the heels. So this, this capital daily, uh, thing it's been going on since 2019. They have dropped a bunch of, previously unpublished information through their own records requests. Um, they sort of summarized it here in this article and they have this podcast that's ongoing. If you have an interest in this case called the murder of Lindsay Buziak. And I did see a Sanitz police sort of a co press release. It's been about a year, maybe two years. So this case is 2008 sometime between 2021 and 2022. I did see that, there were new leads that were created in the case, which is one of the reasons I'm bringing it up today because I'm thinking there's going to be some type of announcement that that there's someone interesting in all of this that is either a person of interest or tied to a person of interest. Um, because of the advancements of DNA analysis, there was technology they used to recreate the scene. There was some stuff found at the scene that had never been tested that's now been tested. I do think there's going to be some traction to this case. I don't know if it's going to be how uh, I pictured it turning out, I, you know, like cases like this and and this article points it out. And I I think this is also pointed out. There's like a wiki page and there's some other stuff that you can go and look at uh, related to Lindsay Buziak's murder. I I sort of jumped on the the boyfriends involved bandwagon. Um, I didn't look at it really hard. I looked at the idea of a serial killer. Um, There were a couple serial killers in that area. Uh, that it interested me that there were some Israel keys ties to that area that I'd always wondered about. But ultimately I didn't, I saw a crime that was too messy to be a serial killer of any note. 
And I wondered like, so that kind of left me with random or like family or acquaintance, basically family friend or acquaintance, whatever you want to call it. I'm curious. And you may not know right offhand. Do you have any idea um, who saw the couple? You talking about for the sketch? Well, the story is that like she met the couple there and they went in the house and they had to have been seen by someone. I, I know that um, her boyfriend and like one of his friends was on their way there. And I think they maybe saw the guy. They saw two people. There are two, okay. wit- there are two witness composites that come up here. Um, the exact story that I, that I have heard over the years goes something like insert a time. I think it's five fifteen or five thirty or something in the evening. And, so Buziak has talked to these people on the phone and two witnesses observe her walk up to a couple near the house and shake hands. They described a, a Caucasian male with dark hair and a blonde haired woman um, with a very distinctive dress walking towards the house. Uh, the man had dark hair. Woman was blonde. I think they're both 35 to, to 45 and whoever the witnesses are, they saw Lindsay shake hands with them, and they discerned that they had never met before, and they were meeting for the first time, and then they saw them enter the home. But we don't know who those witnesses are. We don't know who those two witnesses are. I don't know that they're named. Uh, they could be. There was a sketch released, and I think I read it in the Times up there maybe, the sketch was of the woman and it was like a profile picture. And I assumed it was from a distance. I do know that Jason um, had been uh, able to see someone, I think through a window or the back door, there was something going on where the boyfriend was there with a friend and ever how they were getting into the home, they saw some sort of figure, but I don't believe there was a sketch from that figure um, I could be wrong there. It could be that Jason and his friend are the witnesses, but because he wasn't there at the beginning of the sh- the viewing, the showing of the house, I assumed it was someone who lived in the area. Right, and uh, so I that's always been a pressing question to me. I actually don't think it's actually addressed anywhere, and it can become relevant, right? The at least a narrative part of the story. Now, I don't know enough about this case to make the distinctions that were being made in this article, um, but I could probably find problems with the ones that are made. But you know, we're not doing that. But um, it was, I think that you know, as they, the guy was leaving, um, something caught his attention and he retreated back into the house or something. Um, yeah, he probably left the sheath of the knife behind with his DNA on it. Yeah, but. Um, you know, I, it, it, my so one of my biggest questions has always been because here's what I do know. Uh, well, I think I know. <laughs> um, I doubt very seriously that unless they were uh, professionals or highly compensated, uh, I doubt very seriously a couple or two people working together would have maintained quiet about that murder for this long. Uh, There is one circumstance under which. If they're dead. 
if, if, if two people can keep a secret, if one of them is dead. Exactly. And so my, I've always thought that if it is in fact only, um, only the boyfriend and his friend, cause they were kind of, they were supposed to be there to, for her safety, but not to intrude. Right. That was like the whole point. They were there to kind of watch over her. But the issue was the house was so new that they had trouble getting directions there. Uh, it, you know, this was 2008, so it's a different time, you know. Uh, and so there was a little bit of confusion. But the whole point was that like he was supposed to be there in case there was a problem. And But she had been very clear that she did not want him interfering with a showing. So I assume he did this for her all the time, right? Oh, I'm sure. He showed up and he brought a friend with him. I don't necessarily remember why the friend was with him or whatever. But, you know, they were just basically there to watch. Now, it's all kinds of ironic, right, that uh, he shows up and essentially sat in his car probably while she bled out uh, if she wasn't killed instantly, uh, possibly while the murder was happening. Right. Well, it has to be like, there has to be some overlap there. And that was one of the things that was a burning question for me was what was the exact timing of all that? Cause he texted her to let her know that he was a couple minutes late and she was okay with that. And then he had arrived, but you know, as a lot of murders do, which is another thing that makes me think not a serial killer is basically the eyewitnesses said to be, and I, and I pulled this up while we're talking, the eyewitnesses says that whatever goes down starts at five 30 and Jason and the person that he is late with, they arrive at five 40 and they see sort of possibly a figure in the glass at the end of it all. Um, and so that's a 10 minute period where, She's introduced herself to those people. They've gone into this house and she's dead. And uh, it's, it's described as a pretty brutal crime by the different uh, investigators uh, that I've read talk about it. But it's also described as a pretty amateur crime, which is how they rule out some of the things overall that have come up over the years where there's this whole cartel angle that comes up. You know, these cases that have these pop crime legs – they get a lot of theories attached to them that are frequently it is bullshit. Unbelievable. Like yeah. unbelievable. This had nothing to do with the cartel. No. And I can't even make that make sense in my mind, but I I see it. I see where they come up with all this stuff. And you know, it's the the straightest line here. Come on, yeah. right? Now it it does it could be like this, like interesting uh fictional movie plot right it is a, it is a, it's very much a movie plot except it's not it's right. reality and so you have to kind of check yourself and say yeah so what are the chances of something like this actually happening right like where you've got a couple that lures this particular girl uh, this particular real estate agent there, and they're just there because they didn't rob the place, right? It was a new house. I don't think there was anything to rob. Right, exactly. Um, and so, you know, that pretty much 
unless it was a murder for hire, that would kind of nix the whole money aspect, right? Yep. Okay. And so, you know, that goes to love or revenge, which can off, uh, they can often be kind of intertwined. Um, yeah. Yeah. But you have to, you know, sort of put it in perspective. Is it possible that a couple uh, did this randomly? And it was just, it just so happened that, you know, Lindsay Buziak was the uh, recipient of this like terrible event that this couple decided to do. Sure, it's possible. It's also highly unlikely. Yeah, I would tend to agree it's highly unlikely. This ties in really well to what is coming up to be our next thing. Do you have anything else that you want to say about just this article and kind of the possibility of uh, if her case is solved, I'm going to, that's going to be amazing for me. Do you think it'll be solved? I I mean, if they've got DNA from the scene that points to somebody close to her, like I think it might, I think it's a real narrow group of people that could be involved here. I don't really know what the motive would be except to say that I agree with you on the possibilities, but I think it would be cool if Canadian officials close that case with either an arrest or some degree of certainty. Well, yeah, it would be cool. Um, it, I mean, I find it hard to believe though that uh, DNA evidence wouldn't have been like siphoned out and analyzed by now. I mean, because 2008 was. They're saying advances in technology. So in the press release that I had, they were saying that a joint deal between RCMP and the FBI and the Sanitch police in like 2021 or 2022, like they had some stuff to test that had not yielded results before that they thought might now yield results. And that's the reason I'm saying like maybe they do have something there. And it's it's one of those cases that, like you said, it's solved but not adjudicated. Maybe they're getting closer to being able to adjudicate it. Is that a better phrasing of that? Yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying. I and I do know um it has become I, I'm you know, I scratched the surface on being uh familiar with how DNA has evolved and um it just seems like this would be like a huge priority, right? Yeah, to some degree. The thing about DNA evolving, uh, the technology evolving, is that the results are so much faster. And so when I see these, um, you know, 15-year-old cases, no, yeah, 15-year-old cases, that they're like, oh, there may be DNA that might, you know, siphon out a person of interest or a suspect, or it may help us draw, like, our final conclusions and solve the case, like, Usually, you would just present the results. It's weird when it's being said that way to me. Because how many cases do we, cases that aren't these pop crime cases that we just get the results of, right? Yeah, it happens every day. We have, a lot of times we don't know anything about the case. It's just like this old case had DNA preserved We've done the testing. Here's what we found. This is who we arrested or this is who did it and has now died, you know, and it happens all the time. And so anytime there's this like weird 
kind of lull, like, ooh, we might have some DNA. Let's see if we can find a match. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. And it's just, it's just feeding the like narrative to me. It's not anything. And I don't feel like, I don't feel like it's necessary to report that we might have DNA. <laughs> well, I, and I agree with that. I mean, I agree that that is, uh, it, it's getting weirder. I would say since even 2000, realistically, um, DNA has been in the forefront of investigators' minds, in my opinion. Where we're, where we're going with all of this. So we just wrapped up the case of Robert Long in course of our timeline for season four. And Robert Long was one of those really rare cut and dry serial killer cases, in my opinion. And by cut and dry, I mean he did everything in such a short period of time that all the evidence was linked because of similarities and fibers and hair and fingerprints. And if you went back through that, more than likely DNA. Um, he's been executed at this point. So... For all intents and purposes, his story has a big circle, which is closed out, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's there's no question in my mind. Yeah. So where we're going next, um, where season four is taking us next, is a very interesting place. And it was weird that this came out as we're working on season four because the second place that we're headed is to – what's known as the EPANA task force in um, Canada. And when I say EPANA, I'm saying E-P-A-N-A. Project EPANA was a 2005 task force. So it was created ahead of this. So for those of you who maybe are not so geographically inclined, which includes me, let me describe this for you. Vancouver where we just were talking about Lindsay Buziak is as far across the continental United States as you can get from where Robert Long was. Robert Long is down in Florida. We are going all the way over and above Washington state for Vancouver, but where the project E Pana takes place is actually just North of there. I mean, it's actually several hours from there, but if you're looking at a map, it's just North of there. And on your, Right-hand side above Vancouver, you would find a place called Prince George, British Columbia. And if you went west until you hit the ocean, you would find Prince Rupert, British Columbia. But overall, this is due north of Vancouver. The cases that are involved in E. Pana's project here, they mainly take place along a section of road of, of highway 16. So although they started it in 2005, when they were looking at highway 16, they branched it out a little bit and some elements of that have changed, but this is the area known as the highway of tears. They've added a little bit of highway five in Canada here. And what started as an examination of 13 victims over time has swelled to be 97 victims. So the name EPANA comes from the E Division. And that is the division of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police that have jurisdiction over British Columbia, which is 
Canada's westernmost province. It is the largest police body in the province. So they provide both federal and provincial level resources uh, for investigators in that area. And Panna is the name of the Intuit goddess who cares for souls uh, before they enter into heaven or before they are reincarnated and sent back to earth. The unsolved murders and disappearances that happened along British Columbia's or BC's Highway of Tears, even though that sparked this you know, task force being created, um, initially in 2006, they really only wanted to know if nine investigations in that area were the work of a single or multiple serial killers. So then in 2007, because of how they were investigating those cases, the number of cases they took on doubled from nine to 18. And over time, all the way up till 2018, they have slightly changed the criterion for the case selection to try and define what the task force is investigating. Currently, they have 13 murder investigations and five disappearances that are official. And, and by official, I mean they are the file for this and all of the information related to each individual file is on the desk of the E-Division. Those cases range in date from 1969 to 2006. Uh, today, we're just going to talk about like sort of the names and places of those particular victims. What was interesting, not just the geography, but also one of the sources for this little section is a guy named Gary Rogers. And Gary Rogers has actually tried to be helpful with uh, the Lindsay Buziak case, but he's ran into some trouble there. So... As we move forward, we are. I'm, I may even try to get him on the show. Gary Rogers is a retired RCMP serious crimes detective. He was an investigator, a death investigator, with the British Columbia Coroner Service, um, among other things. He is currently an author and a blogger and um, an all-around talking head in true crime in Canada. So as we move like down the road here, I, I got to ask, have you looked at the, the Highway of Tears type cases before? I have. In your opinion, you know, when you look at them, do they immediately scream serial killer? Not to me. Yeah, they don't to me either. And that's one of the things that we're going to talk about is sort of how all of this goes. Um, here's the criterion for the Epona cases as they currently uh, sit. Number one is the victim is female. Number two is the victim was engaged in one or more high-risk behaviors. And that is, uh, the example for that is behaviors that would tend to place them in the control of strangers in potentially isolated environments without witnesses. In like addition, hitchhiking. Right. That's, that's what I was going to try and give an example. Uh, hitchhiking alone or... Uh, potentially engaged in the sex trade. Uh, they would be without witnesses. They would not have easy avenues of escape and they would not have an easy source of assistance. That's the second 
uh, criterion. The third criterion is that they went missing from or their body was found near Highway 16 from Prince Rupert to uh, Hinton, Highway 97 from Merritt to Fort Nelson, or Highways 5 and 24 connecting Belmont and 100 Mile House. And the fourth criterion was the evidence indicated there was a stranger attack, meaning no known suspect was seen or identifiable, and there were no grounds to believe that the death was the result of suicide, misadventure, or domestic violence. And I did notice as I got deeper into this that misadventure included all manners of accidents, uh, meaning accidents the victim themselves might have precipitated or uh, caused or accidents that like another person might have had. So if we look at just a, sort of a glaring overview to start this off, I uh, want to focus on who is like officially on this, this list of, of um, victims at Ipana. And again, it goes all the way back to 1969. Gloria Moody was 26 years old when she was the victim of a homicide. She was last seen on October 25th, 1969, leaving a bar in Williams Lake. Her body was found in the woods at a cattle ranch uh, 6.2 miles away from there. And this is technically not a Highway of Tears case. However, she is First Nations, which means um, she's of Aboriginal descent in Canada. Uh, the second case is Micheline Pear. She was 18 years old and the victim of a homicide in 1970. She was last seen on Highway 29 at the gates of Tompkins Ranch, situated between Fort St. John and Hudson's Hope. Uh, two women who had given her a ride dropped her off there. And her body was found at Hudson's Hope on August the 8th, 1970. She was not a Highway of Tears case, and she was Caucasian. The third person uh, is a 1973 case. Um, she disappeared in October of 1973. Her body was found in a ditch on Highway 5 south of Clearwater. Her name is Gail Ways. She was 19 years old. She was a victim of a homicide. She was not a Highway of Tears case. And she was Caucasian. The fourth victim is a woman named Pamela Darlington. She was 19 years old. And in November of 1973, she vanished from Kamloops while hitchhiking to a local bar. Her body was found the following day. And she was the victim of a homicide. Um, next up, we have Monica Ignis. She was 14 years old. She was believed to be going home from school when she was last seen at 11 p.m. on December 13, 1974 in Thornhill. She was walking home alone, and her body was found in a gravel pit near a densely forested area on April the 6th, 1975. It's just east of the town of Terrace near Kelger Forest Service Road. Two witnesses reported seeing a car pulled over on the side of the road the night that Monica disappeared. Uh, the pair saw a man and a passenger who looked like a girl inside the vehicle. So she is a Highway of Tears victim. She is Caucasian, and she was determined to have been strangled. 
The next victim on the list is a girl named Colleen McMillan. Uh, she disappeared after leaving her home in Laklahach to hitchhike to a nearby friend's house in August of 1974. She was not a Highway of Tears victim, and she was Caucasian. In 1978, in May, we have our next victim, Monica Jack. She was 12 years old when she was last seen riding her bike on May 6th near Nicola Lake. For 17 years after she disappeared, Monica's fate was unknown. And in June of 1995, forestry workers found human remains in a ravine off a logging road on Swacom Mountain, which is about 12 miles away from where Monica's bike had been found. Um, she was identified by dental records and DNA confirmation. She was not a Highway of Tears victim, but she was First Nations. And she has a closed case. She's one of the only closed cases in this group. Uh, next up, we have Maureen Mosey. She was 33 years old when she disappeared uh, May 8th, 1981 in Kamloops. She was believed to be hitchhiking from Salmon Arm to Kamloops, which is in the BC interior. Her body was found the next day by a woman walking her dog along a road off the Trans-Canada Highway about nine miles east of Kamloops. She had been severely beaten. Uh, cause of death for her was blunt force trauma. She's not a Highway of Tears victim, and she's Caucasian. Uh, in 1983, uh, Shelly Ann Bosco, who's 16 years old, went missing. And several days after she went missing, personal items of hers, including clothing and blood droplets that matched her blood type, were found near the Athabasca River. She's not a highway of tears victim, and she is uh, Caucasian. On August 25th of 1989, Alberta Williams, who was 24 years old, went missing. Her body was found on September 25th of 1989, about 23 miles east of Prince Rupert. Uh, her body was found near the, the Tai overpass, and she had been strangled and sexually assaulted. And she is one of our Highway of Tears victims, and she's also First Nations. Delphine Nickel was 16 years old when she vanished on June 13th, 1990. She was last seen hitchhiking east from the town of Smithers. Um, she is a Highway of Tears victim, although she's missing, uh, and she's First Nations. Then we have Ramona Wilson, who was 16 years old, and she was hitchhiking from Smithers to attend a dance and stay with friends in Hazleton, B.C. on June 1st of 1994. Ramona's remains were found in April of 1995, north of Yellick Road near the Smithers Airport. Um, and there were several of her items in a small organized pile a few feet away. Uh, there were objects nearby that included a half-buried section of rope, three interlocking nylon zip ties, and a small pink brass knuckles type water pistol. Uh, she is a Highway of Tears victim, and she was also First Nations. And then we have 
a young woman who went missing on the long weekend in July of 1994 from Prince George. She had been working as a sex worker and told her friend she was headed out to meet a customer. She walked around the corner of a building and she was never heard from again. Her body was found August 17th, 1994 in the bushes along Highway 16. Um, She's also a friend of another victim. Her body was found about three and a half miles east of an area known as Burns Lake. Her name is Roxana Thiara, and she is a Highway of Tears victim, and she was First Nations. Alicia Germain, who was known as Leah, she was found murdered on December 9th of 1994 behind Haldi Road Elementary School off of Highway 16 West outside of Prince. George. She had been stabbed to death. Leah was a Highway of Tears victim and she was also First Nations. And what was interesting about Leah's case is she was acquainted with Roxanne Thiara. They knew each other. Um, In October of 1995, Lana Derrick, 19, was last seen at a service station in Thornhill, It was rumored that she had gotten into a car with two unidentified men. So she went uh, missing and is a Highway of Tears victim, and she's also First Nations. Nicole Hoare, she was 24 when she went missing from Prince George. We've talked about her before briefly. Um, She was last seen hitchhiking to Smithers. um, uh, She was seen at a gas station. Uh, west of Prince George, and this was on June 21st of 2002 at approximately 3 o'clock in the afternoon. She was seen talking to a 30-ish-year-old Caucasian male in an orange car, and she is one of the only other convictions we have on this. She is considered a Highway of Tears victim, but she is Caucasian, not First Nations. Uh, Tamara Lynn Chipman was 22 years old when she was last seen hitchhiking east of uh, on Highway 16 in Prince Rupert near the Industrial Park. Um, that would have been September 25th of 2005. And she is a Highway of Tears victim, and she's also First Nations. And then the last official victim in the Epona cases is Aaliyah Sarek Alger. She was 14 years old. And she went missing on February the 2nd of 2006 in Prince George. Her body was found February 10th, 2006. Um, A motorist found her in a ditch on Highway 16 near Tabor Mountain, which is about 12 miles east of Prince George. So she is a Highway of Tears victim, and she is uh, also First Nations. Okay, so... Weirdly, this is like a big handful of people here, but it's not one killer. I I never got the impression that there was just one killer from the Highway of Tears, except from certain branches of mainstream media. Have you ever had that impression? I have never had that impression. Uh, It spans too long. Uh, There's so many different uh, things happening there. I'm not entire like my list is a little bit different than what you just went through, but you were going through the official Epana uh, cases, right? Yeah, there's a lot more. I just had to start somewhere where we could sort of articulate it. There are a lot. You're right. There's a lot more names on the list, and they will come up 
as we go along here. Um, I started with these names because these files are with the E division. All right. Well, files. the only thing I was thinking was like with what you've said, um, I'm not entirely sure like what I was going to say about not thinking it was a serial killer would apply, but I think it does. Um, it just seems like there are so many, um, I feel like each individual case has a set of circumstances that, um, would lead to who did it. Right. Now I do think that, uh, the hitchhiking element, which, uh, actually I don't know if it's illegal in Canada now, but you know, you can't, you can't legally hitchhike in the United States, um, now, but like, so that actually brings in like this real, uh, stranger danger sort of element to this, especially since it's based around, um, the highway, the highways, right? Yeah. And so it is a very real possibility that while it is unlikely a serial killer did this, that it could be a stranger, right? Right. Um, and, but some of them, I didn't think even fit that criteria necessarily. Yeah, I think it's going to be like, I think this will be one of the more difficult things we've done. I mean, so they've laid these murders on a couple of different people over time. And it's like you said, you, it's this real mixed bag of like who did what. There's these active killers that are sort of like just below, like in, in the U.S. or like in Vancouver. So they're south of this area. And this is a remote area. You know, it's definitely so at this point, it's known that as far as the Highway of Tears or the Eponic cases, it's not just one killer it's it's a mixed bag of things now it does you were saying like you had more names there well yeah they i have names on a list that go all the way to december 2018 right. um and that's uh it's an impressive list uh, and we're gonna go over it and we're gonna talk about it but what we're really gonna do is we're gonna talk about some of the cases that are now considered to be connected to some of these guys but specifically, we're going to get into some of the downtimes that serial killers have. Because I noticed that one of the things um, one of these talking head analysts did, and Gary Rogers also does, they take a look at people like Gary Ridgway, and they're like wondering what was going on in his downtime. So that's going to come up. We're going to talk about some... I think there's about six serial killers and three murderers that are sort of individual murderers that are going to pop up in this series. But what we're going to do here is we're, we're going to go for an episode or two in an overarching way um, and look at some of these guys. And we're going to focus in on one of them because you and I have developed some pretty serious questions about how he ends up in all of this because he's not just tied to things here. He's tied to things in the U S and you know, allegedly there's DNA, but we have questions. I think is the best way to, to, to state that. Right. Well, there's always questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so we're going to go on a little journey. Um, so I guess the next episode, we're going to pick uh, two of these killers to talk about that are sort of, low-hanging fruit and at this point we know where they are <laughs> they're definitely um, um behind bars 
and we'll talk about them and we'll get into uh, how some of these cases are reported to be tied to some uh, Washington and Oregon area homicides. I think what we're really getting at here is, is this the type situation where it's really easy for law enforcement to make their own serial killer? At this point in time, I don't think anyone thinks this is one lone killer at all. But I think there have been times where it has been easier to consider these cases to be serial killings than it is to just look at maybe we have an overarching violence problem. Um, that's been sort of, well, and it's, it's double-edged because putting it out there like, you know, uh, the Highway of Tears murders, it does get the case's exposure, right? Um, again, journalists weaving the narrative, it, it sort of, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything about um, the particular Highway of Tears murders that doesn't allude to them being connected somehow. I mean, that's before like they started actually uh, solving it or solving some of them or presenting most likely scenarios on some of them, right? Oh yeah. Um, and so, in what so one side of that is it does expose the cases. The other side of it is like you know, I am always hesitant to. I never go along with it, but I'm always hesitant when that's what it takes to get the narrative out there because it. Uh, I'm always afraid that it's going to take away from each of the individual cases. And, you know, we talked about this with the Jeff Davis 8 about how, you know, the cases aren't being solved because it's being lo- looked at as a group that they all have to have um, certain elements. And, you know, I, I don't know for sure that, it was done purposefully. I do think that, like, you're right. No investigator at this point would think, oh, these are all connected, right? Um, even just a span of time, right? Yeah. But it's just an unfortunate, it's an unfortunate set of circumstances that, you know, a task force of investigators, they were like, something's got to be done about this. Um, I do agree that... In the majority of these cases, especially like we're hearing uh, for the, now you said not all of them are Highway of Tears murders, but the Highway of Tears murders and then the sort of uh, just group that the EPANA task force is working on. I do feel like there's this overarching violence against women problem, right? Yeah. Um, That is... I don't know why it's not being addressed head on at this point. I, I'm not sure. Um, it seems like, well, at least to me, it's like really apparent. I don't, do you feel the same way? Uh, yeah, I think, I think we'll be able to examine some interesting problems that might reveal like some of the issues, like uh, talking through Gary Rogers stuff for just one second. Like these, the reason I was singling out if they were highway of tears or if they happen to be Aboriginal or first nations is important. That's because those women in these areas are particularly vulnerable. Like even 
talking about them as First Nations and Aboriginal is a little derogatory in some ways, because along this stretch from, so Prince George is in the East, Rupert's in the West. If we go from Prince George to Prince Rupert, there are 23 different indigenous communities and reserves along that stretch of highway. So these places, they don't have the latest, greatest facilities um, in the 80s, the 90s, even today. And that's, when I say facilities, I'm saying schools, I'm saying community colleges, I'm saying medical services, I'm saying parks. Um, like, there's a huge amount of poverty that occurs because of the way the first people's populations settlements are treated. Um, and, and when you do that, you create a vulnerable population, but then you also give them problems. Like, how did they get out of that area, both long-term and short-term? Because they can't afford, in a lot of instances, transportation, which is like a basic thing. So, yeah, people who can't afford transportation, which means they're going to have difficulty getting to uh, places where they can make money and get education, um, and I'll say this, like funding and resources is going to be an ongoing theme of the next few episodes. In 2009 and into 2010, these E-Division cases received a budget of over $5 million. And that's been cut. Uh, in 2014, the budget was 800000 so they went from $5 million over the course of the next four years, it goes down to $800,000 and it has continued to drop since then. So the current task force, um, it started out that 70 officers were tasked to this. It dropped over five years to 12 officers. And now there are just three officers working all of these cases. So what side do you fall on that? Like, is that reasonable or is that um, unreasonable? Uh, it depends on the number that you treat officially. Cause these, like the other thing I noticed, like they say that they're tasked to this, but they have a regular caseload. So that makes it unreasonable for this many murders to be laying out there open. Like just, just these 18 missing and murdered people that we just talked about. That's too much for three people to have a regular caseload. You're right, but how long do they get? Uh, see, we're gonna. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. As so, just I like do the, think that a results driven. Um, I think that the drop in funding is results driven, or absolutely. the lack thereof, and the fact that they're you know getting just these like, you know, either. I, I don't know how much uh, we're going to see how much technology comes into play and we're going to see like, you know, what cases have been solved versus what cases haven't been solved. But I don't necessarily, I don't think it's unreasonable or should be taken so personally that the funding drops with the amount of time that passes uh, for these cold cases, right? Because the results aren't there. And so it's not, you know, it, it it can be an endless money pit. Now you're right. Um, that's weird that it seems like if they're only going to have three doing it, it seems like that would be like their job, right? Not like their overtime. I, I'm not yeah. really sure what's happening there. Um, but, you know, to go from like 70 to, to down to three 
officers working on it part of the time, I guess. I, I don't know how that's divvied up. But so that seems weird. I, I don't even see why they need that much funding just for three officers, right? Well, it's no longer a task force at that point, you know? Well, I don't think so. You know, there's a lot of ins and outs of uh, cold cases that are really hard to accept. Um, actually, my experience with it is a lot of times I'm impressed by what's available. But a lot of cold cases, uh, the evidence wasn't gathered to begin with. It's no longer available now. It's never going to be available, right? And so moving forward, you would want to do better, you know, for unfortunately new cases, but there's really nothing that can be done for uh, some of the cases. And so there isn't really an interest in continuing to put a lot of resources into these investigations that aren't going anywhere. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that's going to come up along the way. Uh, first of all, I went and dug up Canadian court cases on some of this stuff. Um, I have been sort of impressed by some of the armchair sleuthing. Uh, and I'm going to say it's it's more the people like Gary Rogers. And I don't know if that counts as armchair sleuthing. I've been impressed in some of the applications of their own sort of institutional knowledge that they've applied from having worked uh, in Canadian law enforcement, there, there's a lot of interesting things that they've done to break this down. Um, the resources are going to come into play. Uh, sort of the groupings by calendar year are going to come into play where they, you know, I've seen people take like 1969 to 1974 and they call that one group of activity or potential activity to look at. It's a great way to compartmentalize this case. It's so strange to me because one of the other things that I want to talk about here is, is that it's so strange to me how much attention is now paid to the Highway of Tears cases and how little results it has, money aside. Um, well, I think the reason for that is like they are all individualized cases um, or largely the cases are individualized. It just happens to have this like uh, grouping, right? Uh, whether it's the whole thing or like you're talking about, like from, you know, this year to another year. Um, and the, I do think that uh, the attention brought to it, it, it heightens awareness. I like to think it prevents, you know, a recurrence or a new case um, but at the same time, like the, this isn't like this overarching problem where they're going to see like this one dude did it, right? They've got to investigate each case and figure out what happened. Yeah. I, I think one of the weird things about looking at a case that way, I, I think it would be, it's just me talking. I'm t telling you from my perspective, nothing else. Um, I think it would be really daunting and kind of uh, intimidating to sit down and be tasked to be one of three people left on a case with this much notoriety. And I think. Right. And you said a case, that, right? Right. Well, <laughs> but removing, removing that notoriety and doing what you just described, which is like, okay, is there a like? Is there a place I can start with a single 
case that's a single person and a single victim that I can go, this makes me think I could move in a direction with this victim and close this case, meaning just this one person. Right. And I think that that's absolutely what has to be done. The problem is like without this grouping, they don't get any exposure, right? And so the grouping helps, but then it's got to be broken back down into these individualized cases. And that's really hard to do once the narrative is sort of out there. And I don't know. I mean, I could go ask, you know, a hundred people, like, do you think the highway of tears murders in Canada, is that a serial killer? And I would assume a high percentage of that would be yes right? Just sort of what's out there in mainstream media, because that's the impression that the whole concept gives, right? Yeah. And, you know, if you look for, you know, a little bit, it doesn't take very much to see that, no, this isn't, there's no possible way this is the same uh, killer. Like, it's not one killer. And that's putting aside the fact that, like, over time, some of these cases have actually been closed and, you know, the person has been convicted of it or they've been found to have died, right? Yeah. I see both sides of it. I do think that they were doing the best they could as far as, like, trying to bring attention to it. Unfortunately, that's not really... Well, especially with old cases. I mean, I don't know about new cases so much, but old cases, like, shining more light on it doesn't make the investigation any easier. Yeah, no, I agree. And it goes back to police resources and, you know, how do you set things up to be adjudicated later? Because that really, like, I think you, I think you can damage some of these cases. I don't know, I don't know how you, like, jump into this and, and decide where you're going to start. So that's what we're going to... Well, you start with the first one. You mean as a task force officer, you start with the, the oldest case? Yeah. Well, ju- well, you can pick your criteria. You could start with the, the last one. It, But I'm saying, like, you say, like, where do you jump in at? Well, there is no jumping in. It's like a step-by-step process, but you've got to start somewhere. And it literally, like, and see, I think that that really illustrates what I'm trying to say is, like, how overwhelming it is when you've got this, like, list of 30 names on it versus when you've just got one name with one location or one situation, right? Yeah. And that's how things get solved. Um, but you just have to start wherever it is you want to start. Just pick a name. Um, now, I would start, I'm a chronological type person, so I would start with the oldest case and work my way forward. They should be able to tell immediately whether they're going to have anything to go off of or not, unless there really was just no work done at the time that the person went missing or the time that their body was found, right? Yeah. I would assume investigators have a sense of this. And then, you know, sometimes the case is that the investigators might have made sense of everything that was going on around the case. It's just there was no evidence there. And they didn't, they weren't the kind of, you know, confrontational uh, law enforcement officers that hauled somebody in and, you know, made them confess. And so there just wasn't 
enough to do anything with it. Yeah. So hopefully that is what we're going to try and figure out as we go forward, how to present this in a way that it becomes a much smaller picture uh, like we did with the Jeff Davis 8 case that potentially could be solved one case at a time. And we're going to rule out and then some of the theories that people talk about with the Highway of Tears to see if they make any sense to us at all. Anything else on Lindsay or the uh, starting of the Epana Highway of Tears cases? No. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time.
Hey, hallelujah, if you feel 